The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. People understand that the power of togetherness and the power of uh, the agglomeration of ideas in cities and knowledge. And so I, I think that certainly the long arc of history into urbanization has not been reversed by lockdowns, however many. Hello, my name is Matt Nicard. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Ethical Partners Funds Management and welcome to the Good Investing Podcast. Well, our guest today is Susan Lord Hurwitz, the CEO and Managing Director of Mervac. So just a little bit of background before we start. So Susan leads, in our view, the best domestically focused large-scale real estate owner and developer in Australia. She's been the CEO and a board director of Mervac since 2012. And all up, she has around 30 years of experience in real estate in Australia, US, the UK and Europe. Now, prior to joining Mervac, she held senior roles at MGPA, Macquarie, Lendlease and LaSalle. And Susan is the chair of the Green Building Council of Australia, a director of the Business Council of Australia, a member of the New South Wales Public Service Commission Advisory Board, and is president of INSEAD, the Australasian Council, and a member of the INSEAD Global Board. Welcome, Susan, and thank you for being our fifth guest on the Good Investing Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Matt. Now, do you mind if we start in 2006? Uh, now, I know you give a tremendous amount of credit to Lendlease for your early professional development, and I worked there um, for a period of time. We crossed over a little bit. Do, do you mind, um, I guess, do you find yourself applying some of those lessons at Mervac, namely giving opportunities to people no matter their age, gender and experience and based primarily on merit and ability? Absolutely. I think it was very foundational in my career and an absolutely amazing place to be a young person for precisely those reasons. And so I, I definitely have taken those to heart. I mean, you, you think you'll recall that what Lenny's was at the time exceptionally good at was identifying people who had some sort of management or leadership potential at a very young age and helping them develop their leadership skills at the same time that they were developing their technical skills which has generated a whole generation of leaders have come out of that generation of Lend-Lease. And I think that was the foundation of it. So at Mervac, we do work really hard on, on ensuring that people have leadership skills being developed at the same, same level as, as their technical skills. So that's uh, uh, one lesson I've, I've taken uh, from Lend-Lease. The other one is uh, you'll remember the, the ethics test. Uh, do you want what you're about to do on the front page of the newspaper for your family and friends to read? Very simple test for ethical decision-making that I've never forgotten. Yeah, I agree with you on that. that that's the ultimate test. Um, would you be proud of what people read about you? Lendlease also had a really good sense of purpose, still does. And if I open the, the Mervac annual report, the first section before everything else is a section on our purpose. Now, I know you believe strongly in firstly having a purpose, prioritising that purpose, and then ensuring Mervac strategy is driven by that purpose, don't you? And um, I guess the question I'd like to ask you is, have you always been a really purpose-driven um, individual? 
It's, a, it's an interesting question. I was I was pondering it in preparation for our discussion and actually talking with my 18-year-old son about the, the genesis of why I think like I do and why I behave like I do. And it's, it's complex to unravel, but I, I do believe in higher purpose and I do believe we have more to contribute than making money. And I have always believed that. Now, I couldn't quite tease out why I have always believed that, uh, but that has always been, I can even remember as a child wanting to make life better for the people around me and and now we've got a much bigger platform to make life better hopefully for millions of Australians. It does create quite a burden I guess in a way having that um, ongoing role in an organisation because it it never really ends there's always more and there's always um, a greater difference to make. I actually remember you in uh, when I was at, um, at Lendlease and always remember watching you walking with purpose and, and always looking like you're going somewhere. Um, how, do you, how do you de-stress? How do you unwind and relax and, and, and manage that? Because it is a pretty big burden to, to carry. I, I don't, don't see it as a burden. I see it as a privilege. What, a, what an enormous privilege that I and we have to make a difference to a lot of people and how they experience their urban lives. The burden I feel more acutely is the burden of trust, that we hold ourselves out to be a trusted partner and to do the right thing even when no one is looking, even in the dark. In fact, one of our values is to be genuine and do the right thing. And that is so hard won and so easily broken. So that feels more of a burden to me than the, the burden of uh, of being a force for good, which I think is an endlessly exciting journey. As you say, there's always something more to do. Now, so how I de-stress is I read. I read a lot and varied. And uh, the, we've got a little Mervac book group and swap ideas on books of what to read. So I've always got two or three on the go. And, and that's the way that I decompress. Fiction or non-fiction? Both, actually. Um, the only genre I don't really like is science fiction. And what are you reading right now? Right now, I am nearly finished with a book called The Midnight Library, which the premise is the person half dies and gets an opportunity to try out hundreds and hundreds of lives to find one that, that fits and, and ends up, spoiler alert, coming back to the original life and, in fact, isn't dead and carries on with the life. But the, the, the concept of there are multiple doors that you could go through in your life and maybe there is more than one life that you could live. So very entertaining and also um, beautiful things, which is Hunter Biden's autobiography. And it's absolutely harrowing because he, he descends into uh, drug abuse for years and years and finally comes out the other side. But it's a harrowing account on the way through. Wow. Sounds really interesting. I'll have to look those up. Thank you. And back to Mervac. Um you became CEO in 2012, and obviously property in this country, certainly the big end of town, is, is pretty male-dominated. Um, you're also pretty young for, for a CEO when, um, when you took the job in 2012. Did, do you see yourself as a pioneer for women in business and, and women generally in the industry in particular? I really don't, to be honest. I, I just do what I, what I do and I follow the path that's been in front of me and, and had great opportunities in the organisations I've been fortunate enough to work for, Lenley, Macquarie, LaSalle. Uh, so I don't, I am passionate about the cause of women, obviously, and we're very dedicated to diversity and inclusion, more importantly, at Mervac. Very proud that we're one of the very few ASX 200 companies with a 50-50 gender diverse board. 
Um, I do a lot to support the women in the organisation, but I don't. I certainly don't see myself as a as a pioneer, just doing what I do. Well, that's really interesting because Mervac is that fifty fifty. It's also I, th- I read somewhere yesterday actually equal pay as well, which which is fantastic. Yeah. It's really important part of our process in assessing companies. Yeah, zero gap for um, three or four years now. I think a like for like zero pay gap. Yep, zero gap. That's no, that's right, and that that's yeah, that's something that's really important to us. Now, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, are there particularly are there are there specific policies in you know at Mervac to 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 drive that outcome? I mean, how did you kind of arrive at that after you know the, well, over the last three or so years? Uh, it's part of a whole suite of things that we do to keep focused on diversity in its broadest possible forms. There's no one silver bullet to this topic. You have to do a thousand things and really scrutinizing the data around pay discrepancies is one thing that you can do, but you have to keep fixing it because it keeps creeping back in, not because anybody's being willful or wanting to discriminate. There are just so many subtle forces that drive towards a gender pay gap that it's a constant battle to keep on top of it, but it's part of a whole suite of things around uh, really strong parental leave policies, family violence support policies, uh, flexible working, which was a thing way, way before COVID for us, that that very firm belief that work is what you do, not where you are. And if you have that view, you can attract more women because they can work in a different rhythm uh, than the standard corporate hours. So there's there's a thousand things you have to do all all the time. Um, Short lists have to be um, gender diverse in terms of um, job hires and so forth. Uh, I'm on the property champions of change at the moment and we've been talking about a pitch pledge. So requiring um, brokers or other suppliers who are pitching to bring gender diverse teams um, and for us not to accept pitches from suppliers if they don't bring a gender diverse team to pitch. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard about that. Just moving on to, I guess, the the broader focus um, at Mervac with regards to to large scale, I guess, multi asset class um, developments. Do you think this, from a, a product perspective, is Mervac's real point of difference at um, at scale in Australia? I think it will be. I, I think we're stepping into that journey. We, we spent the last eight years working on our urban asset creation and curation strategy and ensuring that we are world-class at each of our individual specialties. And I think empirically, if you line us up against any sector specialist in each of our sectors, we we are up there in terms of demonstrated performance. And we are increasingly moving into an area where we put those things together. So where at Green Square, for example, retail apartments and commercial will come there as well or Waterloo over station development or a project we're bidding on in Melbourne. Different level of complexity but also a different level of impact and I think the the whole hyper-local theme that's come out of COVID will reinforce that people wanting that vibrant urban experience where they can live, work, play and shop in a smaller circumference without losing amenity. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I think many people forget how difficult those large-scale developments are. We, you know, as analysts, we sit there and we say, well, it could be an office block that could be um, built to rent some retail, some residential, and you know, we, we put our models together, but it's another another task altogether to actually bring it together and actually make it work. And certainly our view is that, that 
Mervac is uniquely placed in this country with an Australian focus on those types of multi-use and mixed-use developments, but doing them really, really well um, and, and and placing a, a legacy there for generations to come. Is, is that an added responsibility, do you think, as you put these together to say, well, you know what, that's going to be there for the next 100-plus years. Um, what we create will make a real difference. Um, you know, it's a pretty big responsibility, right? It is a big responsibility to get it right because, like you say, built form, you can't unpick it. Once you've built it, it's there for, for good or for not so good. So, so yes, and a, and a responsibility on so many levels of financial responsibility, safety responsibility, responsibility to surrounding communities because these mixed-use developments are probably, except with the exception of Western Sydney Airport, not in a greenfield. And so there are existing communities that need to be listened to and connected with so that you don't have some some mixed-use development come and land on top of an existing community with, with no no connection into that community. So the, that is that is an increasing challenge, I, I think, in that area. But uh, done well, it's a uh, that people are obsessed about legacy, Matt. They, they, I, often, I shouldn't really say this on an investing podcast, but I don't think many people wake up in the morning and think, I shall generate some EPS today. But they do wake up and think about what they're going to leave behind that they can be proud of. I want to jump back to 2012 again when you started at Mervac. What were the first things you realised that you thought you had to change um, and how much of that had you worked on before joining? Because from memory, it took the board some convincing you uh, to get you back from London to Sydney. I just remember back at the time. So what did, what did, you, what did you think you had to do in the first um, little while once you joined? Yes, I, I, uh, the first time they approached me, I, I remember I was um, in John Lewis buying shoes for my son and uh, the headhunter called and explained, didn't say who it was, and I said, oh, no, thanks, very happy here, and carried on buying the shoes. And uh, four months later, they came back and said, no, we really want to speak to you. Would you please at least come and talk to the board? And I remember thinking, hmm, that doesn't knock on your door twice in your life very often. I really need to pay attention now. Uh, it was difficult to actually get a, a really good view of the company from outside. Uh, there was, it was, as you recall, uh, it was it was done very quietly, and so I couldn't talk to anybody. So I, I really had uh, very little visibility. But it it was immediately apparent there were two things that where where I had to start. One was it was a toxic culture. Thirty seven percent staff engagement is not a pleasant place to work, and that we know that. High levels of staff engagement are the single most important predictor of financial success sustainably in a business, and 37% isn't that. So started to work on how we would change that, and eventually we did, and we, we got pre-COVID up to 90, which is above the, the global high-performing norm, so they're quite a transformation in culture, not straightforward and certainly not easy or pre-planned in any way. And the second was strategy. So um, the... I think you might recall, and I'm not sure if I can say it on a podcast, but MGR used to stand for mongrel in the investment community because it was seen as this collection of disparate things that didn't hang together with any coherence. And so we started by asking ourselves a really, just a simple question, what are we good at that we can prove we're good at empirically, not just what we think we're good at, and what are we not good at? Let's stop doing the things we're not good at and let's do more of the things we are good at. It was such a simple strategy question. I don't think anybody's ever going to write a business school case study about that question. 
but it really set us off on, all right, here are all the things off strategy and divested them over the next several years and really put us on the path to this urban asset creation strategy, starting back with um, eight Chifley back in 2012 and then really accelerating through 10 commercial assets and the big residential pipeline over the next several years. But it was that was the starting point, I think, uh, a realisation that the culture needed to change urgently and dramatically and that the strategy needed to be clear and focused so that people could sign up to a mission and be part of something rather than part of a collection of disparate things that were together for what I could determine no particular reason. I can think we can fairly say your plans worked nine years later and, and still continue to, to work. Now, we've got to touch on COVID. Um, we, we all saw the shocking photos seemed like a lifetime ago, but um, you know, back in March 2020, as, as COVID seemed to reach the peak of panic in the developed world, and at that stage, I don't think anyone really knew what would happen here in Australia. So as CEO of the owner of some of Australia's key assets and a workforce of around 1,500, what, what were the first things that were going through your mind as you saw those images from overseas? I think, and I know other people have shared this, I, I was at first in a bit of denial of, well, we'll just ignore this and it will go away because that's too scary to contemplate. So there was a bit of denial, which was a phase that lasted about a week, and then swiftly realised that we were going to have to take immediate and strong action and galvanised and stood up our crisis management team. We Before it was... Um, announced uh, before the work from home order came in, we had sent everybody home who could work from home. We were helped in that by the fact that we all work flexibly anyway. So we had all the, we had the culture, the technology, the systems, the management style to be able to pivot really quickly into remote, remote working. And uh, we set about helping our customers get through to the other side. We raised debt to make sure that the balance sheet was robust uh, because that was the point of maximum uncertainty. No one knew what would happen uh, to, to anything. The, the, the thought that rent would become optional is not a thought that I think many people had had in the real estate industry. It was just a given that it's a contract and it's due and payable. And that concept evaporated. Uh, so so I, I swiftly went from really this can't be happening to ah, we have to take really strong action here very swiftly. And I'm, I am so proud of the way that Mervac responded and, and the way that people responded with generosity and kindness and compassion for each other and for our customers as we went through that. And then we just got on with running the business. Once we once we worked out, okay, things are gonna, we're gonna be okay here. Then we set about accelerating the business. And I remember really clearly the, the first week when everybody was working from home, we had a board meeting and we undenied about whether we should have it in person or have it remotely because there was no order at that point to work from home. And we thought, no, we better have it remotely. And thank goodness we did because the next week our chairman was diagnosed with COVID and ended up in hospital. And so the whole board and ELT would have been exposed uh, had we had that meeting in person. So bullet dodged there. And at that meeting, the board approved the commencement of construction of the second stage of Ascot Green in Brisbane, which is now sold out as it, as it turns out. But in that week, what a brave decision of the board to keep the business going, to make decisions. The easiest thing would be to stop and be paralysed, uh, and they didn't. And I'm, I'm very grateful to both the organisation and to the board for the momentum that we were able to keep going right throughout and to, to this day and moving forward. I was going to say that's, that's 
it's pretty bold because the easiest thing, as you say, is to do nothing and wait and watch. But obviously, high conviction in the product. Uh, that it shows great leadership. I remember at the time, Mervac was one of the first to to manage its workforce differently. And I guess it's the true test of senior management when there is extreme and maximum pressure making the right decisions. I think it, it became really clear to us that when there's no playbook, all you have are your values. And a crisis is not a good time to work out what your character is. You need to know it before because there were decisions that we made as an ELT that, that there was no precedent for. We didn't know what was the right thing. All we could go on was what value are we trying to show here? And every time we used that as our decision-making lens, I think we made good decisions. Uh, so I think that that was a way that we were able to work our way through something which, you know, we've done plenty of crisis simulation exercises in our time and uh, I think people know that I really don't in, enjoy them. But I was super glad that we had done all this practice on crisis management. We'd never practiced a pandemic. We'd practiced various things, including me being kidnapped. And I have to tell you that ELT did not pay the ransom in the <laughs> simulation. <laughs> I don't know what that says. But was, when the real crisis laugh. came, we didn't spend any time thinking about what committees to stand up, who takes the lead on what, what's my role, uh, what's the head of the crisis committee's role. We, didn't, we just did because we practiced it. So Sydney went into lockdown you know, March 2020 for memory, just as you were um, talking about all these things. And, you know, three months ago, Sydney went to lockdown again. So, so, so what are the big differences? Obviously, there's you look outside, there's almost no difference, i.e. there's no one around. But differences in the way that you and the business have thought about the future relative to um, the first time we had to um, minimise activity. I think it certainly is different from people's experience. Uh, the first time around that we were in crisis and so that to some extent there was adrenaline in the system that people were working out what to do. Uh, this time it feels a little more tedious that we know there's a way out. We, we know it's just a matter of time, uh, but we're, we're, we're not in crisis. So, so there's, it's a different feel from that perspective. I think though, Matt, the, um, do you remember last time around there was all that discussion about the office is dead? We don't need an office. Everybody can work remotely. Working from home, in fact, is great. We all love it. I don't think I've heard a single person this time say anything like that. Uh, I think we'll be surprised on the strength of the rebound because uh, people desperately want to be together and do the things, as you and I were talking just before, the things that we used to love and take for granted. Uh, I think you know, people understand that the power of togetherness and the power of uh, the agglomeration of ideas in cities and knowledge. And so I, I think the certainly the long arc of history into urbanisation has not been reversed by lockdowns, however many. I think that's exactly right. I, I can't wait to get back in the office and everyone I talk to cannot wait to get back into the office, whereas a year ago I was like, eh, will I ever go back? I'll work from home and technology is so fantastic. I, it's amazing the sentiment change. People are absolutely lining up at their front doors to get out, I think. So I think, I, I think you're right. Um, I, I just want to go a step further, though. Again, cast your mind back to early 2020 because I think this is really interesting. So you you paint the scenario. People flee the CBDs. They spend more time in the suburbs and the country. They don't want to live in apartments. They want to work from home, shop online. Um, migration stops. It's almost unimaginable um, as, as every one of those factors 
work against Mervac. So you think of the strategy that you've put together in the last 10 years, every one of those components is almost the counter opposite um, at, at that point in time to the Mervac strategy of urbanisation and um, um, you know, building, building apartments for um, yeah, people who come over from overseas or just the general demand, um, shopping uh, in the CBDs and so on. Did the team ever lose the faith? Did, did you ever sit there and go, you know what, will we pivot here? Will we kind of um, hedge our bets and go another direction or what's plan B, what's the backup? I'm just fascinated to know some of, about some of the thinking at the time of, of, of around the strategy um, at that point relative to those crisis-driven trends that were happening at the time. I think you've always got to be testing your strategy all the time, crisis or not, because you don't want to believe your own story. And so it's a perpetual process of checking in is what we're doing resonating with how people want to live in cities. And we did early on a ton of work using our Hatch innovation process, scanning our customers and talking to them about what was going on in their lives and how they were thinking about the future and what their pain points were. And we we, de- we determined that, that, as I was saying, that long arc of history for millennia, cities have outperformed and generated wealth. That That is not being turned around by a mere pandemic. And, you know, don't forget there's been, there have been very bad urban outcomes through history. Uh, you know, think cholera, think disease, uh, think Chicago in the 1930s. And it, um, it hasn't stopped the drive towards urbanisation because of the pull of the wealth creation and all that it brings to people's lives. So, so we tested it for sure. We actually wrote a paper on the future of cities to try and say, okay, are we really believing our own story here? What, what, are, what do the facts say about that? We spoke to our customers um, and we came to the conclusion that what COVID was doing was just accelerating trends that already existed. So the trends towards um, e-commerce, increased logistics, hybrid working, omni-channel workers, uh, the desire to to live, work and shop in, in more close-knit environments, uh, the, the change in way corporates want to use their workplaces, the bifurcation of older assets from newer assets, all those things exist. They are not new. They just went forward 10 years in the space of 18 months. That's a really good way of looking at it. The, the other aspect um, was around asset prices and I think at the time, well, you would have seen all the analyst numbers and the general views around asset prices declining generally and significantly. Um, now, that hasn't happened at all. And in fact, you've got asset prices in many sectors above what they were pre-COVID. Is that a surprise to you? How did you think about asset prices at the time? And then I'd just love to know your thinking around or how you thought your thinking evolved as to um, asset prices in various subsectors. Matt, I've been endlessly surprised by the compression in cap rates for about the last four years because in some ways it's been disconnected to fundamentals and driven by the weight of capital looking for yield rather than the traditional supply and demand drivers so much for real estate. So I've been on the surprise side for a very long time on this equation, which has really driven our asset creation desire that, that we don't want to buy assets at toppy cap rates. We want to create them and create value for security holders in that way and create the new assets that we think will be fit for purpose. And we thought that before COVID and we think it even more so now. And so, so yes, I have, I have been surprised. You know, who would have thought we would be seeing industrial assets in the threes? 
We're happy to create them and sell them at three. Yeah, <laughs> no, certainly not. Certainly not me. And and just your, I'd love to hear your view, and I'm sure the listeners would love to hear your view on on the outlook. Just quickly, the outlook on industrial office and retail, and maybe even built to rent. What are you thinking? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. So I'll, I'll do it quickly because I know we've got a topic dear to both of our hearts that we need to get onto. Uh, so office clearly challenging at the moment and net effective rents falling, people really thinking through what type of space they want to in, inhabit and, and how they're going to use that. So I think there's uh, some challenges for office in the near term. Uh, retail, I think, will, will rebound as long as it's, it's experience-based, interesting retail. We often talk about beige retail is dead, uh, but retail as a concept is not um, continuing to evolve, and we're doing some quite interesting things, I think, around uh, modular fit-outs and, um, and flexible leases for online retailers coming into shopping centres. That's a whole other topic we could talk about. Uh, Built-to-rent is something that I'm very proud of because for years people told us we couldn't do it, it would never work. Uh, it does work. And our customers absolutely love it. And so I think that there'll be continued focus and more people will come into the space as they already are. And eventually Australian superannuation funds will invest in it domestically rather than internationally. And there is just no keeping up with the demand for logistics space currently. We've got some large um, land holdings at Western Sydney Airport and in um, Auburn, and we are we are years ahead of our feasibility in terms of both the planning process and the heads of agreement that we've entered into. So, the, I think it's it's hard to see hard to see much headwind in the, in that sector. There you go. There's the shortest ever answer to that question. So that was part A of our discussion with Susan Lloyd Hurwitz, CEO and Director of Mervac. There was so much content, we broke it into part A and part B. So that was part A, and please join us next time for part B on the Good Investing Podcast, brought to you by Ethical Partners. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes, and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.